0: Here is speaker-presenter Lyle Southwell presenting the ancient codes of Bible prophecy in his live series called The Prophetic Code. You'll be amazed as he cracks the ancient codes of Bible prophecy in ways you have never heard before. As we begin our subject this evening, as we do night by night, let's bow our heads and let's begin with prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love for us. We thank you for the prophecies that your Bible contains. And Father, we pray that as we study it this evening, we pray that you'll make it clear in our minds, particularly as we look at this important subject, the Christ man and the pagan cross. We look at history and find out how it affects our lives today. And so we pray for your blessing, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The cross is one of the oldest symbols in history. In fact, this is a piece of artwork that is often considered to be one of the oldest pieces of artwork in the world and I want you to notice what symbol there is on this artwork it is the symbol of a cross but not just the symbol of a cross I want you to notice how this symbol is used and what it is symbolizing because here you have the symbol of the cross in place of the sun if we go back to the very beginning The symbol of the cross was the symbol of the sun. The ancients noticed the rays of the sun. As the sun rose over the horizon, they noticed how it formed a cross and they worshipped the sun through the symbol of the cross. Now, the cross had a lot of different aspects of meaning to it. The vertical line crossed by the horizontal line was a symbol of physical union and the balance of nature. Male and female in equality symbol of good and bad, black and white, up and down, positive and negative polarity in perfect balance, bringing new life, light and evolution. The centre of the cross, where the two lines are physically united together, symbolised divinity. And so as we trace the history of the cross down through time, we find that it is typically associated with the circle of the sun. And so if you look at this Assyrian cross right here, you'll notice that it is formed in the shape of the circle of the sun as a sun symbol. Here you have a cross inside the circle of the sun. And the other significant thing about the cross was how it was divided into four parts to give the four elements that people believed that the universe was made of, earth, fire, wind, water, etc., And so you have the four elements of the universe within the symbol of the cross and the symbol of the sun. And there you find it in the church of St. John and Lateran in Rome. And here you find the cross once again, the circle of the sun with the cross in the centre in Rome. Here you have an Aztec version of exactly the same thing. You find that these symbols, these ancient symbols, spread right around the world. You have the circle of the sun, you have the cross, you have the four elements of the universe right there. Now, of course, the Egyptian version, because we've been talking about the Egyptians night by night, haven't we? The Egyptian version was a little bit different. The Egyptian version placed the circle of the sun at the top and then the cross beneath and it formed the ankh. Of course, it was a different shaped cross to the other crosses. And so we find that the religion was adapted when it went down to Egypt, very similar to the Christian version of the Christian ankh right here. Of course, we have the Roman cross again with the multiple circles of the sun. We have the Celtic cross. And with the Celtic cross, what do you have at the top of the Celtic cross? The same thing again, the same concept being repeated, the circle of the sun. And here you find it again. In fact, you find it popping up all over the place. Here you find it with the rays of the sun and the circle of the sun. There you find it with the rays of the sun. And here you find it with straight and curvy rays alternating from each other now the straight line is a symbol of the masculine and the curvy line is a symbol of the feminine and when you have the straight and the curvy lines together it becomes a fertility symbol because to the ancients the center of the cross symbolized where physical union took place when people were making love here, of course, you find the cross with the rays of the sun coming out of it again and again and again. Here you have it in, within the circle of the sun and the rays of the sun and the rays of the sun and the circle of the sun and the rays of the sun. I think you all start to get the picture, don't you? Wherever you look and take a moment some time to look around at the symbols of the cross that you find generally within Christianity today and you'll find this same symbol being repeated again and again and again. Now, here is a different version of the cross. This one is still associated with the circle of the sun, but the ends have been bent over. And, of course, this is a symbol that is used extensively throughout Asia. Um, We find that the Hindus use it, the Jains, the Buddhists, the Shintoists, the Mayans, the Navajos. Many use the swastika. Now the swastika has a number of different meanings depending on which way it turns. When it turns clockwise, it's a symbol of the sun. When it turns anticlockwise, it's a symbol of the earth. And when it's t- tilted on its side, it symbolizes chaos. It's interesting that Adolf Hitler chose the symbol of the swastika because he believed that the master race came from Tibet. This was one of the major symbols of the Tibetans, but he tilted it up on its side. Now, the symbol of the swastika is a very, very ancient symbol indeed. You can find it on ancient temples and medallions. Here you find uh, an Anglian version, and this is a Roman one. There have got a number of different Roman swastikas right here from a long, long time ago. Here you have a different version of the swastika, and you'll find this one popping up on many ancient temples. It's called the continuous swastika, where you have the swastika here, and then here, but the pattern of it continues on and on and on, showing, demonstrating the continuation of the existence and balance of the universe through time. The symbol of the cross today, whether it is the symbol of the cross that we understand or the symbol of the swastika itself, are both symbols of death. Isn't that so? And today, interestingly, they are both symbols of the death of Jews. Isn't that so? Yeah, both. But what about the cross and the crucifixion? What does that actually have to do with our world today? And why was it that Jesus came to this earth and died on a cross, one of the most ancient and powerful Pagan symbols in existence. Those are some of the questions we're going to look at as we go through tonight's subject. Another question we're going to begin with is the subject of the resurrection. Because when we consider the death of Jesus on the cross and the central role that that plays within Christianity today and the cross itself being such an emotional symbol to people of many different faiths because of that. It really is all based around the concept of not the death of Jesus. There was nothing too unusual about the death of Jesus. He was crucified like many other hundreds of thousands of people were crucified in his day. The controversial bit is all about the resurrection of Jesus. And so when it comes to the resurrection, we have to ask ourselves the question, is the resurrection something credible that we can consider as being even something that, we would, that you would believe in? You know, when you stop and think about it, why would you come to this earth? To start a new religion. Now just think about this. Base yourself in, 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 in Jesus' shoes from home. You're going to come to this earth. You're going to start a new global religion. And you need something on which to base the credibility of that religion. Is it possible that you could choose anything more obscure and unlikely than the resurrection? I mean, really, resurrections are things that take place very rarely on our planet. Isn't that so? They are not the kinds of things that we are used to seeing and yet Jesus placed his claim to authenticity on the resurrection. Let's read it in the Bible. If we go to the Gospel of John, chapter 2, that's page 429. 429. The Gospel of John, chapter 2, And we'll start reading in verse 18, where it says this, Then answered the Jews and said to him, that's Jesus, What sign can you show us seeing that you do these things? In other words, what evidence can you give us that you are authentic in your claim to be the Son of God? Want you notice what Jesus bases his claim to authenticity on. Verse 19, Jesus answered and said unto them, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. Then said the Jews, 46 years was this temple in building and you'll rear it up in three days. But he spoke of the temple of his body. So they asked him, what's your claim to authenticity? Show us a sign, prove it to us. And he says, okay, I'll prove it to you. Destroy this body, die three days later, come back to life. Now, that's pretty good evidence, wouldn't you say, if you saw something like that take place? You would say, yep, that's some really good evidence. However, for us, 2,000 years later on, is it credible for us to actually consider that as something that really did take place? We're going to spend a little bit of time here this evening looking at the evidence. And as we look at the evidence this evening, we're going to look at three lines of evidence for the resurrection. First of all, we are going to look at the fact of the empty tomb. Secondly, we are going to look at the fact of the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. Thirdly, we are going to look at the fact of the origin and rise of the Christian religion. These three things here are facts. Let me show you why. Let's begin with the fact of the empty tomb for a moment. And as we begin here, we will find, number one, This one is, we have the historical reliability of Jesus' burial supports the empty tomb. Now, if Jesus was buried, how could the disciples claim that he had rose from the dead if he was still in the tomb? Think about that. How could have they preached in the resurrection? You see, all all that the Jewish leaders had to do to eradicate Christianity was go to the tomb and exhume the body and Christianity ceases to exist. Isn't that so? Because the the foundation of Christianity is found with the claims of the resurrection. All right, let's continue on from there. We have Paul's testimony confirms the empty tomb. And Paul quotes an earlier source that dates to within five years of the event, not a later legendary development. Now here's something else, if you're going to write about the empty tomb and most of the people who experienced that event are still alive, you can't really write about it while they're still alive, if they can go there, open the tomb, see the body of Jesus, say no, there's not an empty tomb, um, Paul's making stuff up, particularly when he's quoting from a, a very, very early source, Indeed. Now, let's read what Paul says about this if we turn our Bibles over to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, page 465. Page 465, beginning in verse 1, Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you have received and wherein you stand, by which also you are saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you, be, you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, that he was seen of Cephas, that's Peter, and then of the twelve, that he was seen of over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some have died or fallen asleep, after that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of time. Now, once you notice, when Paul goes through this statement right here, what he actually says. He says, after that, he was seen of, of above 500 in verse 6, brethren at once, of whom the greater part are still Alive? Would you write that down? Would you make that claim if it was false while those people were still alive? No, because you'd simply go and ask all those people and say, oh, no, 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 it's a false claim. Okay, so Paul's testimony. Let me continue on. The empty tomb story is a part of Mark's source material and is therefore very old. Now, when you consider this particular concept right here, we find that um, Mark's gospel Uh, was written or based on a source that at the very latest uh, was uh, written within five years of the event. So it's very, very old indeed. Um, It relies on a pre-Mark source that no serious scholar places more than five years from the event. The empty tomb is not a later development during the lifetime of the majority of the people who could have contradicted it. All right, continuing on from there, the Mark account, along with the other gospel accounts of the empty tomb, is simple and lacks legendary development and embellishment. This is something that historians will use when they are trying to ascertain the authenticity of a statement. If it is simple, it is usually a statement of historical fact. If it has been embellished, then obviously it has become a legend. Now, it takes two to three generations to form a legend. You cannot form a legend within five years because, once again, all those people are still alive. Who can contradict it? If you look at a a, a later legend just as an example, you find this. Here's a a later one that came up as a legend about 130 years later. Um, The tomb is not only surrounded by Roman guards but also by all the Jewish Pharisees and elders as well as a great multitude from the surrounding countryside who have come to watch the resurrection. Suddenly there rings out in the night a loud voice from heaven and two men descend to the tomb. The stone over the door rolls back by itself. The two men go into the tomb. They emerge holding up the third man. The heads of the two men reach up into the clouds, but the head of the third man reaches beyond the clouds. Then a cross comes out of the tomb and a voice from heaven asks the cross, have you preached to those that sleep? The cross answers yes, and you could go on. You find that there is a lot of legendary embellishment once you come several generations down. Mark's account is not like that. It just says, this is what happened. This person did this, and then that person did that, and so off. Then we come to the historicity of Joseph of Arimathea, the wealthiest man in Jerusalem and a member of the Sanhedrin. You can't go inventing somebody for whom there are long and extensive records, particularly as he was a member of the Sanhedrin. Now, if Joseph of Arimathea really existed and he really had a tomb and really placed Jesus in it and it was really empty then, you could not make that up within five years of the event. All you have to do is go to Jerusalem once again and ask Joseph of Arimathea, can I take a look inside your tomb? Probably one of the most significant men in the entire city. Okay, here's another interesting thought that gives authenticity To the story, and that is that the tomb was discovered empty by women. Why does that give it authenticity? Let me share with you why it gives authenticity. This is evidence from embarrassment. You see, in Jesus' day, a woman could not be used as a legal witness. They were never counted as a, they could never be counted as a legal witness. And so, if you were writing a legend, you would never claim that it was discovered empty by women, as you see in the other embellishment you had there. It was discovered—you know—it was all seen by lots of men. But when you find it was discovered by women, you have evidence from embarrassment. Things were a little bit different in those days, weren't they? Fascinating. All right, let's continue on. The disciples could not have preached the resurrection in Jerusalem had the tomb not been empty. Let's think about this for a moment. Christianity originated in the city of Jerusalem. Joseph of Arimathea's tomb was in Jerusalem and he was the most important man in the city. Now, if you were going to make it up, you would go to the other end of the world. You go to Spain or somewhere and start preaching about it. Maybe you'll get some followers, but not where you are right there, where the events took place and you could go and check them out for yourself. The earliest Jewish propaganda against the Christians presupposes the empty tomb. Let's think about this for a moment. The Christians claimed that the tomb was empty. Their most avowed enemies, the Jewish leaders, claimed that the tomb was empty. The Romans, who were the governors at the time, claimed that the tomb was empty. Everybody claimed that the tomb was empty was empty. Of course, the Jewish leaders claimed that the body had been stolen. We'll discuss that in just a moment. In fact, let's discuss it right now. The claim is, as you find it in Scripture, that the disciples snuck in in the middle of the night, stole the body and then sneaked away again. Let's think about that for a moment. There were 100 soldiers guarding that tomb. Why were they there? What was their purpose? To stop people from stealing the body. That's why they had been posted. That was their express purpose. Now, a Roman soldier did not sleep on guard duty. Do you know why a Roman soldier would not sleep on guard duty? Because he would die the next day if he did. That would be a lot of motivation to stay awake, wouldn't it? Yeah. Now, Let's say, for instance, for argument's sake, that there was one or two Roman soldiers there who'd had a hard night the night before. They'd been partying in Jerusalem and they did go to sleep that night. How many soldiers were there around the tomb? How do you get all 100 of them to go to sleep? Beyond imagination. Imagination. The purpose there was to thwart the theft of the body. They would have been executed if they slept. And so the mere fact that there was 100 soldiers posted around that tomb is one of the clearest evidences that that tomb is indeed empty. All right, so how do you explain it? The first one is the conspiracy theory, and this is the one uh, put forward by the Jewish leaders at that particular time, and that is that the disciples stole the body. This is morally impossible and mentally impossible for a number of reasons. First of all, how do you start preaching in that city where it took place if it's all a hoax? Think about this. What did they have to gain by preaching the resurrection? Nothing but ridicule, hard work, poverty, sacrifice and martyrdom. You wouldn't choose that for yourself, would you? No, not unless you had really good evidence for it. And how do you explain their sincerity at the time of their martyrdom? If I'd based my experience on a hoax and somebody was about to cut my head off, guess what I'd be saying? Oh, no, 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 no. Actually, that was a hoax. Wouldn't you? Who's about to cut your head off? I'd come clean real fast. All right? So there's the conspiracy theory. The second is the apparent death theory and this is that Jesus didn't actually really die. He only, they only thought that he had died and that he actually survived the crucifixion. Okay, he was whipped twice and they would whip you 39 times because they believed that the 40th was the one that would kill you and he had it twice. Then he was exhausted because he'd been up all day and all night and then all the next day on top of that. Then he was beaten up and down the streets of Jerusalem. Then he was crucified and then he was speared by a Roman soldier who was trained in the art of killing people. Now, let's think about it for a moment. If Jesus did survive all of that, how's he going to crawl out of that tomb How is he going to get past 100 soldiers? And when he does, is he going to look like somebody who you are going to worship? I don't think so. Third is that when the women went to look for the tomb, they went to the wrong one. They got mixed up as to where Joseph of Arimathea, the wealthiest man in Jerusalem's tomb, actually was. Well, did the Roman soldiers get mixed up as well? Did the Jewish leaders get mixed up? Because if the women went to the wrong tomb, why don't you think the Jewish leaders said, um, actually, he was buried in that one? And that would be the end of Christianity. It would be the end of all of their problems, wouldn't it? Then you have Joseph Arimathea, of course, Thomas and the other disciples. Um, they went to visit the tomb, etc. All right. Let's move on to the fact of the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. Paul's testimony that we just read here from Corinthians proves that the disciples saw what they believed to be appearances of Jesus. We have, first of all, Peter, then the 12, then, he says, the 500, the majority of whom are still alive to this day, and after that, Paul. Now, If we consider for a moment how many people here claim to have seen Jesus and the fact that Paul says the majority of them are still alive, would you write that and say that if it wasn't actually true? There's nearly 500 people here who you can go and interview to find out the authenticity of the story, whether it is for real or not. Post-resurrection appearances, the gospel accounts of the resurrection allow insufficient time for a legend to accumulate. And we spoke about this in relationship to the empty tomb. You've got to have three to four generations for a legend to be created and the gospel accounts were written within five years of the event. The dissimilarity of the accounts rules out collusion. Once again, another evidence that is used in a court of law to this day reveal authenticity of a particular story. So there are very few possible explanations to what was actually taking place here. Probably the most significant explanation is the uh, mass hallucination theory. In other words, all of these people were hallucinating. Now, people do hallucinate at times, isn't that so? In fact, my wife tells me that when I'm really, really tired... And I've eaten too much peanut butter that on occasions I have hallucinated. In fact, she told me one night that I woke up in the middle of the night and I started to talk about pottery. She tried to talk back to me and I got all upset. Okay, let's think about it for a moment. Can it account for the physicality of the appearance? Jesus eating, talking, cooking, touching, etc. It cannot account for the number of appearances. How many mass hallucinations are you going to have? cannot account for the number of people experiencing those hallucinations. 500 people at one time would be unparalleled to see exactly the same hallucination. There's no required predisposition to have a hallucination. You have to have a predisposition to what you hallucinate about. The disciples were not predisposed to believe in the resurrection, were they? In fact, they took a lot of convincing when you read the story didn't exist in that particular incident. All right, let's look at the fact of the origin and rise of the Christian religion. And this is based on a simple concept of cause and effect. Wherever you find an effect, there is always a cause. Isn't that so? Yeah? So we look at Christianity. Christianity is an effect. Within 500 years, paganism had ceased to exist in the western world and christianity went on to become the greatest religion on the planet so therefore there has to be a cause so what is the cause of that a man who preached for 3 years no it cannot be how could it take place how could it spread around the world so rapidly just on one individual preaching for Three years. There had to be an effect, a cause to create that effect of dramatic proportions. In 500 years, paganism had ceased to exist in the Western world. All right, and of course, the Jews were not predisposed to believe in a resurrection. Of course, the Sadducees denied it. The Pharisees placed it at the end of the world. So this wasn't something that they had been you know, thinking about and planning on for ages. Their concept of the Messiah was very, very different. They had no concept of a dying and resurrected Messiah. They were looking for a king who would rule over the Romans. And yet suddenly this religion arrives out of Judaism and takes the world by storm. The other interesting thing about religions in those days was that religions were largely basically national. Depending on what nationality you were depended what gods you served. Christianity was not like that. And that's why it became such a threat to the Roman Empire. It crossed all national boundaries. Nobody had seen anything like this before. There has to be a cause for it. And those who don't believe in the resurrection posit an event called X that they do not know of, but they say something dramatic must have taken place. We don't know what it is, but it wasn't supernatural because they do not believe in the existence of of the supernatural. So there's a few thoughts to think about in relationship to the resurrection. We could probably think about a whole lot more, but we have some more important things that we need to look at this evening as our as we work our way through tonight's subject. Why was it that Jesus had to die? Why was it that he rose from the dead? What was that actually all about? Well, let's begin our investigation in the book of Revelation and we're going to pick up a theme that we have spoken about over a number of nights now and we particularly spoke about last night and that is this, each one of us here is the personal and individual creation of God. Isn't that so? Isn't that what we found out the last few nights? Yeah, we are all the individual personal creation of God. Secondly, God created us for a reason, for a purpose. What is that reason? Revelation chapter 4. Let's read it right here. In verse 11, it says, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you have created all things, and for your pleasure they are and were created. So here's a bit of review. How do you get pleasure out of a person? I'm glad that somebody's awake by having a relationship. you All the rest of you looking at me like, you're allowed to talk when I ask questions. All right. The way that you get pleasure out of a person is by a relationship. It wouldn't be much fun if you came here every night and I stood up the front like this. Didn't say a thing. You could look at me and then you could go home. Okay. You don't get pleasure out of a person by looking at them. And if you did, God would have created a wax museum. You gain pleasure out of a person by having a relationship. That's the reason, the purpose of our creation. That's why we're here. And that is, right there, the meaning of life. Lots of people go looking for it. It's right there. Notice chapter 3 and verse 20. The language that Jesus uses. Behold, he says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and I will eat with him and he with me. I love this passage right here because Jesus uses international language. Notice what he wants to do. He knocks at the door. He wants to come in. He wants to sit down and do what? Eat with us. Share food with us. Now, have you noticed you can go anywhere on the surface of our planet, anywhere in the world. You can go to any culture, you can go to any language, you can go from the north to the south, the east to the west, you can go anywhere in our world when people want to really draw close together, close intimate friendship, what do they do? They share a meal together. That's what we do here in Australia, isn't it? and we have all kinds of different nationalities right here this evening, we all do the same thing. As well, like, oh, let's go out for a meal. You know, let's go out for Indian or let's go out for Italian or whatever it might be. Jesus is using international language to describe the close, personal, intimate friendship and relationship that he wants to have with every one of us. Okay, so here we find the purpose for our existence. God created us because he wants to be our friend for the whole of eternity. Then a problem came along. Let's read about it in Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel chapter 28. And you'll find that on page 348. The Bible speaks about Lucifer here again. It says, You are the anointed cherub that covers, I have set you so. You were upon the holy mountain of God. You have walked up and down in the middle of the stones of fire. You were perfect in your ways from the day that you were created until iniquity or sin was found in you. By the multitude of your merchandise, they filled you with violence and you have sinned. Goes down, verse 17, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You have corrupted your wisdom by reason of your brightness. I will cast you to the ground. I will lay you before kings that they may behold you. You have defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities, by the iniquity of your traffic. Therefore, I bring forth a fire from the midst of you. It will devour you. I bring you to ashes on the earth in the sight of those that behold you. Friends, let's let's, let's start to put the story together right here. When God created human beings, when God created Adam in the very first place, he created Adam to be his friend. And then through Adam, he has created every single human being here on this earth. We're all related back to Adam and Eve. And so all of us are created to be the friend of God. Then Lucifer comes along and Lucifer sins. He begins the process of evil, of pain, of suffering and of death. God is love. We talked about that last night. And because God is love, he wants to eradicate from the entire universe the existence of sin. Isn't that so? Yeah. Okay, so Lucifer then, of course, came down to this earth. We know the story. Our first parents accepted him and sinned. And that has been passed on to us. So now, here's God's problem God wants to get rid of sin. We are all sinners. That's what the Bible says and that's what the reality is. We've all done evil things in our life. No matter how good we might think we are, I hate to disappoint you, that for every single one of us here at some point we have done something evil. Some of us probably a little bit more than others. But we don't need to go there right now, do we? Okay. So we have all sin. So if God is going to eradicate sin, if he's going to eradicate evil from the universe, what happens to us? We're gone. Taken out, caught in the crossfire, so to speak, and destroyed. So God has a problem right here. Now, and and this to me, this to me, reveals something about the nature of God. We talked about the size of the universe last night, didn't we? 125 billion galaxies, at least. And our little galaxy has over 200 billion suns in it. How many planets in all that? Out of all of that, our little speck of a planet is the only one that is a problem. And you would think that God would say, well, you know, out of all of this universe, I can live without this planet and just, and it's gone. But he couldn't because he loved us, because he created us. Because we are his children. And so he had to come up with another way. And that way involved the death of his son. And that's where it leads us to Jesus who came to this earth and gave his life. So we ask ourselves the question, why did Jesus have to die? Let me give you a simple illustration. It took place quite some time ago one of the early colonies, there was a particular problem with theft. And so the governor of that colony introduced a very early form of mandatory sentencing, 40 lashes for anyone caught stealing. The problem was that the very first person caught stealing was his elderly mother. Now, you can imagine how that grabbed the attention of the whole community. You see, she was caught red-handed. She was dragged into court. All the evidence was gone through. It was clear that she was guilty of stealing and the entire community wanted to know what kind of a governor they had. What was he going to do about this particular problem right here? You see, they wanted to know, do we have a governor who is pliable and who will bend the rules to suit himself and therefore is not a governor of justice. On the other hand, do we have a governor who is so cold-hearted and so cruel that he would put his own mother to death? Forty Lashes, the old lady, she's not going to survive that. No way. And so on the day of the execution of the sentence, you can imagine, the whole region turned up to see what would happen. The scaffold was set up there in the middle of the town. They all gathered around. They're wanting to know what would happen. And of course, the old lady, she was let out. The charges were let out. The, the, uh, the conviction was read out. The sentence was read out. And as she was about to be led forward to the scaffold to take her 40 lashes, the governor stepped forward and he took off his coat And he took off his shirt and he said, tie me to the scaffold. I'll take it for her. And That's what Jesus did for us. We are the ones who deserve death. Let's read what the Bible has to say about it. But Jesus tied into the scaffold and he took it for us as a substitute for you and I. Let's go in our Bibles to Romans chapter 5. The book of Romans, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Romans chapter 5, page 456. want you to notice what it says here. Romans chapter 5, let's start in verse 6. The Bible says, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. That includes every single one of us here this evening. Before we had even any strength to do anything, Jesus gave his life for you. Go down a few more verses because Paul, he says, okay, while we were without strength, he died for us. It goes on a little bit further. In verse eight, he raises the bar another level. He says, but God commands his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. So not only were we weak, but we were sinners and he died for us. Then we go down to verse 10, it says, For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His grace. Have you ever wondered how valuable you are as an individual? Do you know how value is determined? Value is not determined by the cost of creating a product. I have my clicker here. Don't remember what I paid for it. But let's say I paid $40 for it. That value is not determined by how much it cost, 20 cents to make in China, something like that. That's not what determines the value of it. Do you know what determines the value of that article right there? What I'm prepared to pay for it. It's the only thing that determines its value is what I am prepared To pay for it. So think about your value for a moment. How much are you worth? How much was God prepared to pay for you as an individual? Your value is without imagination. You know, we hear about on occasions where somebody here on this earth, they give their life for somebody else. And we think that's an amazing story. I think most of us here who are parents, you know, if our children were about to die, We probably wouldn't blink to give our life for our children because we love our children, isn't that so? Occasionally, it's somebody who is a friend who gives their life and you think, well, that friend, when he gave his life for that particular person, he must have thought that they were incredibly valuable. Then we get people who work in the security industry and uh, when you get to the highest levels of that, they will take a vow to take the bullet for the Prime Minister or the President or whoever it might be to give their life for that person. And the reason that they take that vow and they choose to do that is because of the value of that individual. Let me ask you a question. Who was it that gave their life for you? Was it a parent? No. Was it a close friend? No. The Bible says while we were yet sinners while we were enemies while we didn't even know God it was somebody we didn't know the ruler and the creator of the entire universe came down to this world and he valued you so much he could not bear to spend eternity without you and so he gave his life for you you are incredibly valuable individual so how do we how do we How do we tap into this incredible gift? Well, the Bible makes it so simple. Galatians, not Galatians, Ephesians. Ephesians comes after Galatians. Chapter 2, page 472. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. The Bible simply says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Friends, I want to make this abundantly clear. There is no other way of being saved other than by the grace of Jesus Christ. It is that simple. This is the only way that the Bible outlines for salvation. Now, when we speak about grace, we have to then ask ourselves the question, well, what is grace? You find a simple definition for grace is that grace is undeserved favour. Did any of us deserve, was any of us here good enough that the ruler and creator of the entire universe would come and give his life for us? None of us deserve that. That's why it's called grace. The Bible goes on and describes this grace as being a gift. Let's look at a number of passages from the book of Romans. And this is ever so simple. In fact, before we get to Romans, let's go to, hold your finger in Romans if you're already there. If you're not, go to the book of Titus. Just before Hebrews, page 481. Page 481, Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. The Bible says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Now that grace is a gift. Can you buy a gift for yourself? No. If you bought it for yourself, then it's not a gift. Can you earn it? No. A gift is something that is given that you receive. And so God offers up to us as a gift. And the question that goes through my mind is why would anybody not want that gift? I mean, let's face it, if I was to stand up here in the front this morning, pull out a $100 bill, $100 note, and say, who wants this? It's a free gift. You'd all be running down the front, yeah, I'll have that. It's a free gift. God is offering you a much bigger gift than $100. So what would stop you from receiving that gift? Romans chapter 3, let's work our way through it. Verse 23, the Bible says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And we all know that if we are honest with ourselves that we have done something evil in our life somewhere at some time. All of us have done that somewhere. If we go over to Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, the Bible says, For the wages of sin is death. God is in the business of ridding the universe of evil. We have done evil things, therefore we must die. Continues on, the next word is the word but, that's a contrast, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, his son. So Jesus came to this earth, he paid the penalty that we deserve, he died in our place to give us the gift of eternal life. Now, will God ever violate your power of choice? We talked about that last night. Will God ever violate that? No. Power of choice is one of the most sacred things in the universe because on the power of choice hangs the existence of love. God will never violate your power of choice. So he will give you a gift. Will he force you to come and take it? No. In fact, if he did, it wouldn't be a gift. That's simple. So God will never force you to come and take that. So how do you receive that gift? Hold your finger here in Romans. Go over to the first letter of John. That's near Revelation. There are four Johns in the Bible just to confuse you. And there's a small one. You'll find it on page 491. Page 491. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. The Bible says if we confess our sins, here it goes, we are all sinners condemned to death. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from All unrighteousness. So there's the first step in becoming a Christian: admit you're a sinner, confess those sins to Jesus Christ. The Bible says He will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Now you don't have any sin on you anymore. You see, your sin is gone. Go back to Romans chapter six. There's a whole bunch of different passages here, but let's go down to. Let's read in verse sixteen. In verse sixteen it says, "Know you not that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey His servants you are; to whom you obey, whether of sin under death or of obedience under righteousness." So we simply admit we're a sinner, confess our sins, and surrender our life to Jesus Christ. By confessing our sins, Jesus becomes our Savior. By surrendering ourselves. Entirely to Him and submitting ourselves to Him, He becomes our Lord. And when Jesus is your Lord and Saviour, you have the gift of eternal life. You know, it can't be much more simple than that, can it? It is so simple. Praise God. You know, when I think about the incredible love of God, the fact that He gave His life because He could not bear the thought Of spending eternity without us. You know the story goes a lot more further than that. You see, for Jesus to give us eternal life, he had to die. That was the cost of salvation. But when Jesus came to this earth, he didn't just die, did he? No, he suffered. And he suffered enormously. And the question that goes through my mind is this. Why did Jesus suffer so much? He did not have to suffer to save you. He had to die. And there are a lot of easy ways of dying. Think about this for a moment. I'm going to run through this concept very quickly. Hebrews chapter 2. This whole passage here that is worth considering. Jesus came to this earth as a human being. And he was born as the apparent illegitimate child of a peasant girl and grew up in Nazareth. Now, that might not sound like a big deal, particularly in today's society. However, in Jesus' day, he grew up with a stigma as being a bastard child. And in that society, which was a society where the penalty for adultery was death by stoning That was a really severe thing. He was an outcast from society from birth. His suffering began the moment he was born. You know, sometimes I wonder why it was that Mary wasn't stoned to death for having committed adultery. I mean, the evidence was right there. And when she said, well, I'm pregnant by the Holy Spirit, I imagine most people said, "Mm, yeah, we know how people get pregnant, right? We would have all done that, wouldn't we? And so here you have, well, I don't know the answer as to why that didn't happen, but sometimes I think maybe it's because Jesus grew up in Nazareth. Nazareth was a, was a, a stopover town for Roman soldiers travelling from one part of the, the, the Roman world to the other. Now when Roman soldiers stop overnight, we all know what soldiers get up to, right? That's why the disciples said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? It was like the worst little den of iniquity That you could imagine. If you stoned all the women who committed adultery in Nazareth, there probably wouldn't be any left. And so here you have Jesus growing up in this environment that is the equivalent of, you know, King's Cross, Redfern in Sydney. I guess you've got the same kind of suburbs up here in places. He is pure and holy. How well do you think he fitted in with all of his friends and his peers? None. he would have faced rejection 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 all the way along and of course you know there were those in society as there are today who are supposed to look out for those who are being rejected religious leaders but the religious leaders came along they rejected him as well and then Jesus begins his ministry his ministry lasts for three and a half years and during that time he had 12 men who stuck by him through thick and thin and he comes to the greatest trial of his life and what do they all do They all run for their lives. In one fact, the Bible says one of them ran so fast, he left his clothes behind in an effort to get away. And then they beat him, black and blue. They whipped him twice, severe physical abuse. But one of the things that we often don't like to think about when we think about the crucifixion is when they did that, when they beat him, they stripped him naked and left him that way until they crucified him and he died that way. Now, if you take somebody and do that to them today, we don't just call that physical abuse, we call that sexual abuse, don't we? There is a higher level of abuse in our society than physical abuse and sexual abuse, and that's what's called religious abuse, and that is where you combine the last two in a religious context, ritual abuse. Basically, nobody ever comes back emotionally from ritual abuse without the divine intervention of God. Was Jesus Jesus crucified in a religious context? And we could go on and on through his whole life. The question is, friends, why was it that Jesus suffered so much? Hebrews chapter 2, the Bible says... In verse 17, wherefore in all things it was best for him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. Friends, Jesus went through all of that suffering for one reason alone. He didn't have to do it to save you, but he wanted to be your friend right now. He wasn't happy with just being your friend once you got to heaven for the rest of eternity. He's like, no, you've been living here for about 70 years here on this earth and I can't bear being separated from you and so I will come down to this earth, I will go through the same experiences that you'll go through so that when you're going through those experiences because I can't separate you from it, I can place my arm around you and I can say, I can get you through this. I can bring you through this experience because I have been there. I have experienced it myself and I can get you through it. That's why Jesus suffered. Imagine somebody who loves you that much. Friends, 2,000 years ago, that's the message that Jesus gave to us. He bowed himself. He took the death that we deserved. He gave his life so that we could have life because he loved us. Won't you give your life to him? If you are someone who has never given your life to Jesus Christ, he comes to you this evening with a free gift, the gift of eternal life. He gives it to you because he cannot bear to spend eternity without you. Why don't you give your life to Jesus right now? Friends, whenever we have, regardless of our background, an opportunity to commit our life to Jesus, whether it's for the first time or whether it's something you've done many times before, we should always take that opportunity. Tonight, I recommit my life to Jesus because of what he has done for me. Let's bow our heads as we pray. Father in heaven, We thank you that you are an incredible God of love. You loved us so much. You came to this earth. You gave your life so that we can spend eternity with you. You loved us so much that you came to this earth as a human being and suffered in the same way that we suffer, experienced the same things that we experience, so that you can be with us, be here for us right now, In our suffering. Father, we thank you for your love. We pray that you'll bless every one of us here this evening. We pray that we will all surrender our lives fully to you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to an M24 Media production of The Prophetic Code by speaker-presenter Lyle Southwell. For more information, visit knowthecode.global or call 3ABN Australia Radio on 02-4973-3456.